we've been going through a, a series on the parables of Jesus. We also did parables of Jesus in VBS this year. And I decided to, after some prayer, I chose Luke 16 as my text. And this contains two stories. One of them is definitely a parable. The other one is a possibly true story, but also could be a parable. But it, doesn't, it's, it's, it has some differences with, with some of the other parables, so people aren't quite sure. And I'll leave that to you to try to determine. But these two stories are t- told by Jesus, and they're told uh, to religious people, if you will, the Christians of his day, as a sober thing to think through as you live your life. So I'm really excited to hear uh, what God has to say through these parables. The key to understanding these stories that Jesus tells uh, lies in first understanding who Jesus is and how Jesus conducted himself uh, when he walked the earth in ministry. So who is Jesus? Well, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, walking on earth. Jesus is the one who came after John the Baptist who said, make way, here comes the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I am the kingdom of God. It's here. So John foretold it. Jesus fulfilled it. Uh, He went around urgently, you know, sharing the good news of the kingdom and God's victory at the cross and how God was victorious. And uh, he, he, it says that foxes have holes, you know, people have, have homes and places to lay their head, but Jesus did not. He was an itinerant preacher. He, he lived on the hospitality of others, walked around, and urgently shared this message of the kingdom during his three years of ministry. One of Jesus's key characteristics uh, not to dissect Jesus, but just, to, just as a way of talking about who he is to us even now, is his compassion. This is a huge part of who Jesus is. And we saw, we saw God's compassion in the Old Testament, but God, God's compassion through Jesus is, is so in your face because he's interacting with people like, like you and me. And, and we see people in situations that we find ourselves in, sick or needy or, or just in need of comfort and encouragement. And Jesus uh, had compassion on those people. And we see how he... Um, he loved them. In the stories of Jesus, uh, many of his interactions with people contain phrases like, he saw them and he had compassion on them. Whether it's a crowd of hungry people, whether it's a leper who has a lifelong disease that's killing them and ruining their life, uh, whether it is a poor widow, uh, whoever it might be, Jesus had compassion. His heart went out to them. He felt it in his stomach, the way that you feel when you have compassion, perhaps for, for, for one of your children or something like this. Some of you parents tell me about, you know, the, the bullying that can happen, how you, you, you hear about kids being mean to your kid, and your heart just breaks, right, with that compassion and that desire for, to get your kid, you know, in a better spot or whatever it might be. That's the kind of heart that God has for his children. Many times... Jesus' heart and compassion went out to a person, and this would lead to their restoration, would lead to their healing. The sick, the rejected, the poor, the demonized, all came to Jesus and were attracted to Jesus like a magnet. And his heart went out to all of them. This is just a short explanation of of Jesus' essence as he walked the earth. But Jesus is compassionate. We know that God is compassionate. But Jesus is still compassionate. But God is compassionate. Jesus grieves over unbelief of people, and he grieves over the rejection of people when they reject God. And we know that these are the things God grieves over as well. 
So that's who Jesus is, in short. Compassionate, declaring the kingdom, working tirelessly, um, trying to warn people that need to be warned, mostly religious folks, perhaps like you and me, and embracing people that need to be embraced, and calling everyone to repent and believe the good news that God, God wins, that God has the victory. So now a little wor- word about the, 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 how people in the world saw, uh, saw things, which will help us understand Luke 16. And this is, not, this is something that we can relate to to some degree, but, but the way that people saw the world was, was very solidified, very, very, very hard and fast rules. So to understand the Pharisees, understand the way of the world, we have to understand uh, how things were. In Jesus' day, worldly wealth, health, riches, all of these things were universally believed to be a sign of God's sure blessing on your life. If you were wealthy, healthy, you had riches, that must mean that God loves you and has given you um, these, these amazing gifts and that his favor is on you. That's the evidence. And conversely, people who were uh, poor, who were diseased, sick, demonized, the people that came to Jesus, who his compassion went out to, those people were viewed as being judged by God. They were viewed as being people that uh, who's, who's God's condemnation rested on those people. Why else would they be poor? Why else would they be sick? Why else would they be so needy? It's because God's favor is not on them. So this is something people took for granted in the ancient world, that rich people, healthy people, wealthy people had God's favor, and it's obvious, just look at them, and poor people were under a curse from God. Now these things are not true, just so you know. You can have a small bank account with a huge heart for God, um, and, God, and God's favor is on you. you know, the, though money and wealth and health are blessings that come from God's hand that we should be thankful for, they are not a sure sign as to whether a person's worthy of being saved or not. And that's crazy. But that's how people saw things back then. And the poor agreed with this system. They said, we agree. We are hopeless and we are under the curse. And the rich people, of course, agreed with the system. You know, we're wealthy. We're the ones. And so... If you think about uh, present life having implications for the afterlife, everyone also thought that, you know, when we all die and stand before God, that uh, poor people will ultimately not only be poor in their life before they die, but then they're going to be condemned for all eternity. Poor people. And they deserve it. Whereas rich people are going to go to heaven and be in paradise and have a great time. Uh, Obviously, this is good for rich people and bad for the poor. And many people, of course, being born into poverty in, in their day as well as ours, and also, um, sometimes being born into sickness, being born, think about the, the process of childbirth and sicknesses and how they had less technology than we do, less medicines, less expertise. So someone that became hurt during, you know, as a child or during uh, the birthing process, you know, that person would then be, you know, disabled. And they would beg for money, unable to work, and these poor people were viewed as being under a curse. Just a terrible, terrible thing. But these things are not true. This is just the way that people saw things in the world. Sometimes, um, and, and when you think about this, you, you have to think, are we really, really all that different from people in Jesus' day? It might not be as hard and fast as it was for them, as far as how people viewed things, but um, are we really that different or do we think in a worldly way about wealth 
in sickness and poverty as well. You know, sometimes I've caught myself thinking in a worldly way about wealth, where all of a sudden there's a lack of money or, or resources, and my, and my heart goes directly not to seeking after God and thanksgiving and trusting in him, but goes to a frantic anger about my situation. It's like, I'm just angry. I'm angry that I don't have what I need for this situation. And uh, that tells me that I believe, on some level, that I'm forsaken when I don't have what I need to live, which is not true. But I think that a lot of times we do view lack, sickness, um, lack of finances, whatever it might be, as being like, well, maybe God doesn't love me if I don't have those things. And that's not true. That's not true at all. God loves rich and poor people. Um, but we can easily start thinking of our thinking in this worldly way. Um, I was so convicted by, by our elder Bert's sermon a month ago that I had to kind of confess to him and to my wife and other people, you know, that money or worldly wealth had become somewhat of an idol to me because, you know, I, everything was fine, rolling along, summer, da-da-da-da-da, buffer in the bank account. Then something happens with a car repair and a home repair, and all of a sudden you're in the hole, and you need money that you don't have. And, I, and what I realized was that in that situation, when I lacked resources, my heart went right to anger, uh, anger about not having what I needed, and not to trust in God. And that's when I realized that lack of money and abundance of money can both be idols in your life. Money is the focus. If you don't have enough money, you're focused on, I have to get that money, or I'm mad that I don't have that money. And if you have too much money and it's all your security, then you're also putting your trust in money. Money, 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 money. The Bible calls it mammon, which is kind of like giving money a God title. And so people, it says in the Bible things like, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And when you have those moments in your life where either you have a lot of money and you're kind of taking it easy and not thinking about other people's needs around you, or whether you have a lack of money and you're frantic and angry, um, that shows that you know, wealth has its foothold, that, 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 uh, that, that promise from Matthew 6 that you can't serve both God and money is coming true in you. You know, wealth or lack thereof can become a god. And that's what we have to be careful of. And that's why I felt such a strong compulsion to, to confess that, because I realized when I was in the state of mind of anger and frustration about money that I was, uh, I was not trusting God and that actually money had become an improper, it was in an improper place in my heart. And I'm thankful that, you know, after thinking about this for a month, I've gotten to a place where, oh, you know, God's going to provide. It's going to be okay. We're going to figure things out. We're figuring things out. This was just a big lordship issue in my life that had to be addressed. Um, as we'll see in today's stories, you know, wealth or lack of wealth can destroy a Christian's life by becoming a god to them. And it's subtle. You don't always know that money is your god until you're put into a situation where you don't have enough of it or you have too much of it, and it, and it messes with you. It's very subtle. And Jesus wants us to think about our use of our worldly wealth. And his message is so urgent for us today. Um, so that's, that's, that's Jesus, who Jesus is. That's the world that Jesus was ministering to. Um, the Pharisees who Jesus is preaching his stories to were religious professionals. They were, if you will, the best Christians of their day. They were venerated as people that had God's blessing because they were very wealthy from from the tithes of the temple, 
they wore expensive clothing and all these kinds of things. And they believed, and everyone else believed, that God had blessed them and his favor was on them, whereas the poor and the sick, not so much. But we know that the audience of this, uh, these stories is the Pharisees, because it says in our passage today, which we're going to be reading in a moment, the Pharisees who loved money heard all that Jesus was saying and were sneering at him, sneering at him. And Jesus obviously uh, responds to them with these stories. It actually says in Luke 16, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So anytime we look outside of uh, Jesus to be justified, when I look, compare myself to another Christian, say, well, I'm better than them, so I must be doing good with God. When I look at my family, well, I'm from a Christian family, I must love God. Um, justifying yourself in any other way but through Christ is going to get you in a bad spot. None of us are in heaven unless we are justified by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That's the only way, not being good, not being too bad, being justified by Jesus in God's sight. And the Pharisees, uh, it says they justified themselves in the eyes of others, meaning they looked at others who were poor, and they said, oh, I must, I must be saved because I'm rich. It's pretty messed up. And they were so ingrained in this kind of lifestyle of thinking about God this way that they never questioned it, they never worried about it. And so Jesus says, I'm going to tell them some stories that will unsettle them, which is what Jesus loves to do. So we're going to read uh, Luke 16 with that context in mind. Uh, the first story. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager anymore. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So, he came up with a plan. He called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. That's 50%. And this manager was authorized to do this, so it's all legal. Um, then the, he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it into 800. So $200 savings, 200 bushel savings. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwelling. So, great. Can you see why this parable would be confusing to, to, to Christians to read? Um, it seems that this first story Jesus tells is condoning shadiness at first glance. Now, is Jesus teaching here that it's okay to use trickery and deception to accomplish our ends? No, this, this story is an allegory. The point of the story is found in the end of the story. In this story, unlike some of other, Jesus's, some other of Jesus' parables, the rich man does not necessarily represent God. The story is an allegory. The rich man has a manager. And this manager that's in his employment uh, 
the, man, the, the master decides to fire this manager. So in two weeks, you're out of a job is basically what he says. And the, the manager does not want to beg. He doesn't feel strong enough to work. So he devises a plan. He fills his appointment book with some of his master's biggest debtors, people that owe his master lots of money. And using his authority, his legal authority as the manager, he reduces the debt of each person by as much as 50%. And he reasons that if he can curry favor or, or make friends with these people who are his master's debtors by doing this for them, um, he, but that when he loses his job finally, after those two weeks are up, that he will have some people that feel obligated to help him out. So he can say, you know, remember when I did that for you? Yeah, my, I lost my job. Do you think I could, you know, get some, live here with you guys or have some of your resources? That was his plan. And it was a, sh a good plan. It actually worked out for him. And even the master, it says, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. You know, may maybe that master was like, you know what? I appreciate someone that can, you know, know all the legal jargon and figure out how to shimmy out of this. It's pretty impressive. So even though the master was probably very upset about this, he commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And then, after all of this happens, um, Jesus gives, or after the story is told, Jesus gives some advice concerning wealth. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what's Jesus saying here in this parable of the shrewd manager? Well, us Christians, or the, or the people of delight, we know the end is coming as well. Just like the shrewd manager knew that his time to be working at the company was coming to an end. The end of our lives could be something that maybe some would consider a premature death, an illness, or Jesus coming back. Even if you don't believe that Jesus is returning, even if you're not even a Christian, you know the end is coming, right? The end of your life is coming. So because of this reason, with this in mind, Jesus advises that we use our worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves, so that when it is gone, we will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Now, since we know the end is coming, just like the shrewd manager, instead of being mastered by our wealth and serving wealth and mammon, we should use whatever wealth we have to love and serve others, to make friends with others. And if we use our wealth for God's kingdom in this way, it will show that we are justified not by our wealth or lack thereof, but by our faith in Jesus Christ. And we will be welcomed into heavenly dwellings and rewards. You know, Jesus is warning us to not be like the Pharisees who stockpiled their wealth and built barns and bigger barns for their wealth while ignoring the needs of the poor, all while justifying themselves in the eyes of other people. We should not be like the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees failed to come to Jesus to be justified by his sacrifice for them on the cross, their destination was hell, not heaven as they believed. So one of the, um, one of the things that we have to see here is that no one is justified by good deeds or even generosity or by money per se. They're justified by Jesus. But if a person slips into worshiping money, like I talked about earlier, whether that be because of an abundance of it or a lack of it, we justify ourselves. We justify ourselves in our own eyes. And we fail to come to Jesus to be actually justified by him. 
And it's so easy to look around you and compare yourself to other people and say, well, I, I'm, I know that I'm in a good place because I'm doing better than this person. You know, it's easy to justify ourselves in many, many different ways, but the only one that can justify us is Jesus. When money becomes a God to us, that becomes in danger because our eyes are taken off of Jesus and we are justified in our own eyes, not through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It is true what Jesus said. You cannot serve both God and money. And if you worship and serve money, whether from lack or abundance throughout your life, you could die unjustified. And I think that something that Jesus seems to be saying is that, you know, hell is filled with religious people who justify themselves in the eyes of others or in the eyes of society and fail to come to Jesus to be justified by him. Therefore, Jesus says, do not stockpile your wealth, but use it to gain friends, to build God's kingdom, so that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings and rewards. You know, we all know the end is coming, and eternity is coming. There's an afterlife that's coming. Now is the time to use our resources to build God's kingdom. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think that, you know, there's, there's an eternity, and our lives are just very, very short. And this time when we're alive is meant for investing, for sowing, and for seeing what God does. Says in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So use whatever resources you have to serve, to gain friends, to build the kingdom. In doing this, you're ensuring that your God has not subtly become money and worshiping money. And you are literally building up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. And where our treasure is, that's where our heart is, according to Jesus. That's the parable of the shrewd manager, not telling us to be tricky and shady, and then God's good with that, but telling us, uh, if we know the end is coming, shouldn't we be a little more, sh more shrewd and careful with how we invest our time, talents, treasures, our resources, because eternity is on the other side. I'm getting a call. Spam. Let's read on. Luke 16, 10. After this teaching, Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you, do not, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property... Who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a principle that I believe is 100% true. I think it's impossible for us to serve both God and money. It just is mutually exclusive. It doesn't work. I've tried it. You've tried it. It doesn't work. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So in, in the face of the Pharisees sneering at his teaching about using money to build God's kingdom, he's like, you're so lost. 
you're justifying yourselves in the eyes of other people, all the while missing out on justification from God through Jesus Christ. You can't serve both God and money. The end is coming. And Jesus' little speech, it ruffled the feathers, as you might imagine, of the Pharisees. Because in their system, again, wealth was a sign of God's blessing, and poverty and sickness, signs of the curse. So because they believed this ridiculous human idea, they scoffed at Jesus because they loved money. We spend our whole lives planning for our retirement, which is a fine thing to do. It doesn't mean that your money is your God if you plan for your retirement. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not when your life ends. When you retire is not when, you, when, you, when your life is over. You have about 20 or 30 years to enjoy that retirement. And then there's eternity. And so Jesus is saying, live with eternity in view and let how we use our resources make sense in this short time for actually making, showing up real treasure in heaven, for gaining friends for Jesus that we bring with us uh, into eternity in God's kingdom. Jesus just takes, takes a break between two stories. He says in Luke 16, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now, he's been preaching the kingdom of God, and he's seen people clamoring for him. Huge crowds, just wanting a touch from Jesus, a word from Jesus. He sees people are clamoring, sometimes almost violently, like at a rock concert, to get to Jesus. Um, The kingdom of God is advancing. And as it's preached, people are forcing their way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That feels like that was out of left field. Right? But it's not really. This is still Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He makes a statement about the covenant of marriage, which is very, very definite, without any exceptions. There are the parts of the scripture where it talks about reasons that someone might be permitted to divorce. Uh, But marriage is a huge deal, and the covenant of marriage is to be respected by all people and to be upheld. And uh, in Jesus' day, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they had actually minimized the the clear teaching of the Bible about divorce. uh, That's something that God does not that should be, uh, you know, obviously t- thought about very carefully. They'd minimized it to touch it such an extent that they took the law of Moses and basically said something like, if your wife displeases you in any way, you can, you can send her away with a certificate of divorce. So the Pharisees that claim to be, they're justified in their own eyes as being rich and, 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 uh, and good, the people that say they're really into God's law, they minimize a very important commandment in God's law. And so Jesus gives it to them. He says, look, since the beginning of time, God's law has been around, and it will continue to be around, and the reason is because it's based on God's character, who God is. Not any part of the law is going to be deleted. These things are important to God. The law is important to God. And he brings up this difficult teaching that the Pharisees did not take seriously about marriage. Now, Jesus is really pointing the finger at the Pharisees in his day, um, saying, not only do you worship wealth instead of God, you also 
You people who harp on God's law all day and night and claim that you're fulfilling it and other people aren't, you don't even take the law of God seriously yourselves. You just don't take it seriously. The Pharisees had basically whittled God's law about marriage you know, down to this very, if she, if she burns your toast, send her away. That was their whole thing. And Jesus was revealing to his audience that the Pharisees, he's really, he's really doing a lot of this to be seen by the crowds, the Pharisees justified themselves and didn't take God's law seriously. It, it could be done better, I think Jesus is saying <laughs> to the crowds. God takes marriage more seriously than people assume. And um, though there are parts of the scripture that talk about reasons, proper reasons, or someone could be released from the covenant of marriage, it's a serious matter, and the Pharisees had minimized it. So that's interesting. He's, he's kind of said, you're self-righteous, you are lovers of money, and you, you, you talk a big game about God's law, and you don't take it seriously. And these people are lost. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides. Um, so in, res- in response to, to Jesus being scoffed at by the Pharisees who loved money, Jesus tells his second story. And this is the one that may be a true story, but it also could be a parable. But there are actual proper names used in this story, Abraham and Lazarus, and so people are unsure. Jesus usually doesn't use specific names. I'll leave that to you to decide. The effect, in my mind, is the same either way. So, Luke sixteen nineteen. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees still. There was a rich man. I wonder who that's supposed to be. Probably the Pharisees, right? There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat, but fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. This is a a way to talk about um, paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between you and us is a great chasm that's been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The man answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. Resurrect Lazarus, send him to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so then they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham has some pretty strong words here. And of course, we know that Jesus is going to be crucified and resurrected. And so, you know, isn't it true that even though Jesus was crucified and resurrected, that people still don't believe? It's true. The troubling story. You know, in this, 
the first thing that would have been shocking to the Pharisees was just number one, that the rich man died and went to Hades, and the poor man died and went to paradise. That was surprising. Because again, rich people, good. Poor people, under a curse. That's what they believed. In life, the rich man lived in luxury. Instead, he was dressed in purple garments. There was like a tiny little sea crustacean that was pressed for purple dye. And it took like thousands of these things to make just a little bit of dye. So if you have like a purple garment, it means you are exceedingly wealthy. Exceedingly wealthy. So he was dressed in this purple garment, eating sumptuous foods. This is not unlike the lifestyle of the Pharisees, to be honest. He ignored the poor people around him, like including Lazarus, who ne- whose name means God help us, which is also what I think that we should be saying more often probably. Um, Lazarus was likely a paralytic because he has sores on his body, um, and he's hungry, longing for scraps to fall from the rich man's table, like a dog might do at dinner at your house, uh, waiting, but no scraps came. And in fact, in one final humiliation, actual wild dogs were licking and biting at his sores on his body. Just a terrible picture. That's, that's poverty. Both the rich man and Lazarus died. Remember that the theme, the end is coming, right? That Jesus has been teaching on here. The end is coming for all of us. The poor man was brought to paradise, big surprise, Abraham's side, and the rich man went to Hades, which is one of the biblical words for hell. The rich man is in torment, he's burning, he calls out to Abraham, asking him to send Lazarus over to give him a few drops of water from his fingertip. But Abraham does not have pity on the man. In life, the rich man had more wealth than he needed. He completely ignored the poor. He wrote them off as being accursed. And Lazarus had nothing. But now, in the afterlife, the tables are turned. The last are first, and the first are last. So the rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to life to warn his family members. But Abraham refuses, saying, first of all, it's impossible. It's impossible. There's a, it's the end. There's a chasm. We are at our destinations. It's impossible. But second, um, the resurrection of Lazarus would not be enough to convince the rich man's brothers to repent and follow God. Um, Even the resurrection from the dead would not be enough to break them from their slumber that they're living in. The slumber of being wealthy and being padded from the poor and just enjoying wealth and and forsaking the poor and justifying themselves in their, their own eyes. This is Jesus prophesying about his own death and resurrection. You know, Jesus knew that one day it would be very true that people who heard about or even witnessed his resurrection from the dead would still not believe and repent. And that's true. People that witnessed these things, they still did not believe and repent in Jesus' day. The rich man objects to Abraham. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. All the information is there. And the resurrection is not going to convince everybody. You know, these, these parables, and perhaps especially the story at the end, which, which is either a reality or a parable, they're meant to shock us, not into falling into the same trap as the Pharisees, lacking compassion 
ignoring the poor, and finally missing out on justi justification through Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, we, in our day, we know uh, the end is coming for each of us. Um, it's either going to come in the natural through our death or Jesus coming back. But eternity is waiting in the wings. Eternity is right after death. To be absent from the body is to be present with God. You know, from the moment of death, that's it. That's the end. So with this truth in mind, we are not to stockpile wealth and ignore the poor, but to use our worldly wealth and resources to gain friends to build God's kingdom on earth in anticipation of an eternity spent with God where all of our treasures are going to be stored in a place where they can't be disturbed or destroyed, where thieves can't break in and steal. It's amazing to think about, you know, yeah, retirement's not the end of your life. You get 20 or 30 years, and then where will your wealth get you? It won't get, won't get you anywhere. That's the end. So Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How we relate to money and wealth in our lives does matter. If money, lack of it, or abundance of it, um, is actually our Lord instead of Jesus, then in the end, how can we be justified? We've taken our eyes off the one that can justify us and placed it on looking around us and comparing ourselves to others for justification. We're all in danger of subtly beginning to worship money. That's where I found my heart a month ago. I, I found my heart not crying out in faith, like, oh, I trust you, God, when a need came up, but crying out in anger that I didn't have what I needed. That's a sure sign that, that God has lost his rightful place in my heart, which is why I felt the need to confess that to several people. You know, God does not want lack of money or lots of money or anything related to money to keep us from eternity with him. But Jesus wisely tells us to use our worldly wealth to gain friends, to plant seeds for our eternal dwelling, to take care of the poor. In the end, we're not justified by wealth, but by Jesus, whose blood on the cross paid the price. But for Jesus to be your Lord, you must ensure that you are not serving money, which can happen so subtly, because the principle is you cannot serve both God and money. In response to Jesus' word to us today, you know, I think that God wants us wealthy people who call ourselves Christians to use the wealth God has entrusted to us, be it little or great, to love and serve the Lazaruses among us. Because Lazarus is still at the gate, a theologian said. He's still at the gate. He's still in need. We don't see him. But Jesus wants us who are relatively wealthy, whether we, you know, all of us in this room are, are wealthy. We're not begging. We're not destitute and sick, we are wealthy, especially in, the, in, in a relation to the rest of the world. And I think God wants us to, to make sacrifices. Sacrifices to show God's compassion, to sow seeds of God's kingdom. To use our money um, to serve God rather than serving money with our lives, which is a treadmill that never ends. So whether you are consider yourself to be um, wealthy or whether you're just lower on that on the end of, of money stuff, you know, God would call all of us 
to make a sacrifice today to help the Lazarus in our life um, who we've been ignoring to open our eyes because the end is coming. You know, heaven and hell, paradise or Hades waits. And so I think God wants us to be like the shrewd manager who uses what he's entrusted to us to make friends, to build God's kingdom so that God's kingdom comes, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and it's, it's a sober warning. There's no way around it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you even for the unsettling nature of your word. And I thank you for the way that you taught in such a way as to shock us into listening, because we often are so deaf to what you're saying. I pray that you'd help us to hear your voice and how you're leading us to make sure that our Lord, that you are the Lord of our lives, that we are not serving money, but that the money we have is serving you and your kingdom. That we'd be a people who learn to store for ourselves treasures in heaven where nothing can take away the, the, what you have for us there. We store for ourselves treasures in heaven. We use our worldly wealth to gain friends, to build your kingdom, so that for all eternity we can look back on how we made our decisions, even simple monthly budget decisions, and see that we were um, honoring you and looking to you and worshiping you, not money. Pray this in Jesus' name.